This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, good afternoon. It's great to have your company for this run-up to Christmas. I'm Cassie Help with you for The Country Hour this week and indeed next week as well. Now, shearing is known for its back-breaking work and a lot of shearers have left the industry after breaking down physically. But what if there was a way to alert shearers when they're at risk of getting an injury? The muscle sensors will basically measure the electrical activity in the muscle, and that's something that we can pick up from the surface of, of the skin. And then these other sensors are just basically measuring just like the angle that the body part is, is at. I'll have more on that study soon. And you'll also hear from a fisherman about the extension of the snapper ban, what they make of the extension that was announced on the weekend. But finally today, first up of today, I should say, after a fairly lacklustre couple of months in the war game, the market has finished the year on a slightly more positive note. A number of global economic factors have played into the recent downturn, including the European energy crisis, which is still expected to influence the trade in 2023. But Larissa Smith spoke to wool broker Rob Calvert about some of the highs and lows of the season. Yeah, the first six months of the calendar year were very positive. Uh, we opened up, uh, well, basically December sale last year, um, 17 micron, for example, closed at uh, 2438 clean. It's it closed last week uh, at 22.47, so that's sort of an 8% drop year on year. But we must remember in June of this year, it peaked at about over 2,800 cents. So the drop from June to now is about 20%. Yeah, certainly it's a tale of two halves for this year. We saw a strong rise in the first half and, and we lost that pretty quickly in the second half. Can you remember what the trigger was at that halfway mark? Well, it was probably a, a number of things. I mean, the market, it, 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 the final looked too dear compared to everything else and we were talking about that. I mean, it was... Um, it was breaking a lot of records as far as the gap between fine wool and medium types, for example, and we were all quietly hoping that we might see medium types improve to close that gap, um, but that just didn't happen. We saw things, uh, the Europe, European energy crisis and, and just uncertain uncertain uh, economic conditions in the Northern Hemisphere spooked the market a bit and we just saw a rapid retrace for that gap to close by fine wool coming off. Yeah. And that just sort of was sustained, really. I mean, the energy crisis is still very much apparent in Europe. Is that still a concern going into 2023? Yes, it is. Um, so Europe, generally, the greater wool market, I guess, out of Italy in particular, is reserved, a bit sort of um, negative. But within that, there are pockets where they're quite bullish and there's quite a lot of inquiry still. And that's, um, you know, in the program space, in the non-mule space, RWS is still... Um, a buzz topic up there. So those little areas are still keenly sought, but um, they're still very, very cautious, yeah. I think wool growers did change their uh, selling strategies throughout the season. Normally they might hold them over for a couple of months or whatever it might be, but they were selling them, selling those bales as soon as they were coming off the sheep. Yeah, certainly, again, with Farmall, it, it was a very easy decision because the prices were so good. Interestingly, the broader you go, the more um, level the market has been. So we've seen this sort of wild upswing and then correction with fine types. Um, 
But 19s and 21s are much more level. They uh, started the year at about 16, close to 1,700 cents. They closed at 16.70, so really quite close. Uh, They peaked in that June period at 1,800. So they followed the same pattern, but nowhere near to the extreme of fine types. Growers making any money from crossbred wool? Um, No, crossbreds, unfortunately. (laughs) They're still struggling. Um, I mean, we go back two years ago when we first saw the COVID downturn and we were disappointed with crossbred prices and they've just continued to slide. Um, So they're they're not at their lowest point now. Um, They're they're slightly above that point, but, um, yeah, very disappointing levels at this stage. Need a return of the really thick bulky jackets. Yeah, well it's it's unfortunately with the crossbreds it's it's just a it's a global oversupply of that type. You know, there just aren't the markets to soak up the the volume that we produce. We've mentioned Europe. What's happening in China, our biggest buyer of wool in Australia? How much has the loosening of the COVID zero policy played into well the lift in prices in the last week and, and going forward? Yeah, well certainly the the last two weeks have been purely off the back of that change in policy, you know, dropping the zero COVID policy. Um which in turn I think was a reaction to uh, some very weak economic numbers out of China in November and and, and also October. Um, so that look, they've softened that policy, and at the same time, we had there hadn't been meaningful quantities sold up to China since earlier in October. So we were expecting them to come back in, and normally what happens the longer they sit out. Uh, when they do re-enter, you'll see a bigger spike because they just need to secure more volume. Um, and that's pretty well what we saw. So that COVID news came out. That was the shot in the arm we needed over the last two weeks. Um, but now it remains to be seen what will happen in the new year. Um, I don't expect us to just continue to march dearer from here. I expect them still to be that play that in-and-out game that they have been known to. Cautious approach. Mm-hmm. So a mill's opening up to a greater capacity in China or is it, or is it still sort of a bit ad hoc? Um, I think the capacity's sort of always been there, um, it's, but they, it's a hand-to-mouth sort of mentality. You know, they don't have... There's certainly not greasy stock up there, excess greasy stock. So um, they need to keep buying. Um, so it depends, and that's the great unknown. We know that they've entered and bought some significant quantity in the last two weeks, um, but we never know exactly how much that is. So now we sort of see and see how that... Purchasing um, plays out over the next few weeks. Well, obviously no sales for three weeks, but now we open back up. Um, and then it'll be a question of you know when they have to re-enter and buy some more. Rob Calvert from Wool Solutions chatting about the wool markets this year. And uh, Larissa Smith continued on this vein when she looked at some of the work that's being done to try and ease the burden on the body when it comes to shearing. Shearing's known for its back-breaking work. But what if there was a way to alert shearers when they're at risk of getting an injury? Mark Robinson from the University of Melbourne has just finished his PhD after collecting data from sensors worn by shearers to detect the stresses and strains. Certainly the catch and drag is, you know, a, a big effort, but, but really the um, actually just spending all of that time in a really poor, stooped position, bent over at the back for, for, for long periods of time is also something that's really um, not, not very good. But that, that's really the whole job um, when you, um, if you consider it. So it's all, it's all pretty hard. Would you say that there's more pressure on some of those key muscles towards the end of the day after shearers have had, you know, nine, ten hours in the shed? Uh, definitely, certainly. So we we look at looked at all of the, the data, and we we're very much looking for key points in in the data that are basically following that that trend of things basically getting constantly 
worse over the course of the day. So we're really looking to pick up things um, in the data that are getting worse. And then, yeah, from there, we sort of yeah, identified a few key muscles where, where this trend is really more pronounced and then something that's shared amongst the whole population that we sort of measure as well. So where are those two key muscles on your back? I guess the, the first one is called the erector spinae muscle it's basically the main sort of long the two long sort of muscles that go down the middle of the back and, and yeah so that one there basically lower down in the, in the lower back and then and there's another one which is off to the side a bit and it's a bit a bit deeper which is very sort of key for stabilization in, in the lower back as well. So the most recent study of those shearers where did the sensors go on the body and what were you trying to collect from that information? So there's two types of sensors that we use. One of them is is these muscle sensors. And so the latest stuff is with the um, targeted setup. So we have yet yeah, one sensor uh, uh, each on these two muscles, just on one side of the body, um, as well as some other sensors that, that measure basically the, the body movement. So we're looking at the actual body um, motion at just on, on the rib cage and the, and the pelvis, and then these two muscle sensors as well. And then we can get, yeah, basically, um, you know, most of the information that we're getting with the really sort of complicated setup, just with a much um, smaller and, and more compact setup. And so what do the sensors do? Like, how do they work? How do they pick up that a twinge or a, a pain reactor or something in the muscle? Yeah, so it's still, it's still very much looking at basically sort of things that change sort of over the day. So we're looking at kind of sheep to sheep what happens in these sensors. But, but the muscle sensors will basically measure the electrical activity in the muscle. And that's something that we can pick up from the surface of, of the skin and then these other sensors are just basically measuring just like the angle that the body part is, is at so looking at just sort of like the joint angle between yeah how, how far bent over you are at the using the lumbar spine basically. And the whole idea of this is to try and in a way predict when shearers are going to get close to developing an injury have I got that right? Yeah trying to provide some information of basically the level of, of risk that they're currently at. Could something like this slow them down if, if they're getting alerts to say that they're uh, at a higher risk of, de of um, developing an injury? It, it, it could, yeah. We, we, we really at the moment, uh, what we've got right now is something that we can sort of help them make that um, decision in terms of their work rest kind of period. So, so information to help them sort of make that trade-off in terms of looking after the body versus shearing as many sheep as, as they can. Yeah, and then possibly in the future we could we could looking at some more sort of active solutions where if we sort of yeah help them a bit more, maybe we can do both in terms of help reduce injury and also you know not not require them to slow down basically. How is the the wool industry involved in what you're doing? Oh, well, we, we've had um, a lot of support from Australian Wool Innovation, or uh, AWI. Yeah, so right from the beginning, we sort of, as soon as I sort of signed on, we sort of got in touch with them, and they were quite quite keen to, to hear about the plans, and then they sort of provided some of yeah, the initial funding that we had, and then they've been sort of involved the, the whole way along. Well, where to next for this project? Is there a way to, to take it forward into a, a, a commercial sense? Yeah, we're actually looking at a bit of that right now, getting trying to get some, some funding to actually get a kind of a more properly uh, kind of engineered actual product rather than kind of the prototype that, that we've got. And that's something we're sort of maybe looking at that we can sort of get something out there, maybe through some something like a, a shearing sort of school kind of training. We can get a pilot going with a bit of a, a product there. Yeah, that's, I guess, the next step. 
I, I do hear a little bit about, um, yeah, these injuries being a, a pretty big barrier for people getting into the industry. Um, so, so definitely, even at, at the, the very least, being able to have sort of more information around how they how they're going and how they're tracking along, even as they sort of learning to to shear more more sheep as well, and, and sort of yeah, helping prevent sort of injuries early in their career would be quite good as as well. PhD candidate Mark Robinson from the University of Melbourne's Human Robotics Lab speaking with Larissa Smith about a study into injuries suffered by shearers. I think it'd be interesting to know where the strain is on your body when you're doing different things, not just for shearers, but hopefully it does ease that physical toll that uh, shearing can take on the body. A lot of people have broken down over the years and there's all sorts of ways that people try to deal with it with those slings and things like that, but it'd be interesting to uh, see if you could actually stop or change what you were doing and avoid the injury altogether. We'll see how that work goes. It is 17 minutes past 12 here on The Country Hour. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency emergency broadcaster. broadcaster. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather's up next. I'm sure a lot of you are ripping in to try and get the crop off before Christmas, although I'm sure a lot of you who are used to getting Christmas uh, may find yourselves uh, harvesting after Christmas, maybe even for the first time. We'll chat a little bit more about that through the week. But before we get to weather, Shipping Australia, the body representing the shipping lines, has criticised an ACCC report that labelled certain container fees as unreasonable. Shipping lines are charging import or export companies about 120 dollars a day for holding containers that haven't been returned on time. The Freight Alliance, which represents the import and export companies, says that, ha- cost, uh, that has cost their members about half a billion dollars over the last few years. Jim Wilson from Shipping Australia told David Court and the ACCC and the industry are just plain wrong about the fees and the shipping lines are within their rights to charge for their use. The starting and end point here is that the ocean shipping containers are the property of the ocean shipping companies. Those companies bear the financial burden of having boxes manufactured, having sent them to the right place at the right time and for keeping them in good repair. And, you know, if you as a shipper want to organise a clean container, it's the ocean shipping company that's got to make the container clean and then food grade, so the food grade is a higher standard. That costs a lot of money. There are people who've described um, the logistics of putting containers in the right place at the right time as a nightmare. Now, something that maybe people haven't realised is ocean shipping companies allow importers and exporters to freely use, without financial charge, the boxes that belong to the ocean shipping companies. This can be for anywhere from 10 to 20, maybe 30 days. This is called free time. Can you imagine a car hire company allowing you to use its cars for 10 days for free? So what we have here is importers and exporters being given free of charge the ability to use a container for 10 or more days for free. And the shipper community, the importers and exporters are saying, it's not enough time. We should be given more time for free. Can you imagine how importers and exporters would react if they were ordered to let other people use their assets for free? Now, there are many ways to avoid these so-called container detention fees. And incidentally, I take exception to the, the, the term container detention fee. It's a container hire fee, really. If I hire a container from you, then you would expect me to pay the hire fee. So this all 
kind of concept of detention fee is a bit silly. Shippers, transport operators and consignees have a wide range of ways to avoid ongoing hire fees. They can return boxes in good time. Uh, this needs to be incentivized. Um, some businesses compete for trucking business on the basis they can get the box back in time. And if they stop doing that, then they won't be liable for um, fees. Terms and conditions of business can be changed. So, you know, trucking companies are not liable for ongoing fees. Shippers and consignees could buy and operate their own containers. And insurance can also be obtained uh, and extra free time can be bought or requested from the ocean carriers. So there's actually market-based solutions. So we But isn't part of the problem, Jim, that, that sometimes ships don't come in when they're scheduled to come in and so that there's a delay? There's, this is along a, a problem all through the pandemic, wasn't it, when, when ports were bypassed? That creates a fee for, for the land-based transport companies, doesn't it? Well, the thing to bear in mind is ships aren't late because ships are late because they're bored or they're going off window or there are traffic lights in the sea or, like my colleague likes to say, it's not like the captains take the ships for a joyride and do donuts in the sea. There's only one reason why a ship is late, and that's because it's been delayed at a port. So the really important thing to remember here is Ships being late is caused by poor port performance and poor port congestion. If you want to get to the root cause of that problem, you have to tackle the problem, which is normally to be found at the port and on the land side. Secondly, look, we need to have a flexible system. Uh, in relation to vessels skipping ports, if, let's say, for example, every vessel had to, by law, call at Port Brisbane, discharge all its cargo before it can move on to the next one, which would say Sydney and then Melbourne and then Adelaide and then Fremont. As you can probably imagine in your head there, I've just described a route around Australia. If for any reason there's a delay at the Port of Brisbane, every ship would end up stuck at the Port of Brisbane, right? So you need the ability to be able to skip ports. But that obviously creates problems, doesn't it? Particularly for the agricultural products that, that need to go out on time because it's a fresh product. Well, we live in an imperfect world and everyone needs to know their own business and operate their own business in a way that's flexible, um, in a way to, to suit the best interests of both themselves and the, the system as a whole. Look, I mean, you know, we would love to be able to click our fingers and make everyone's problems go away. But live in an imperfect world. There are, there are hurricanes well, in the world, there are cyclones, there are labour strikes, there are tra- issues, there are train derailments, there are floods, you know, there are sometimes sad to say ships sometimes sink at sea for all kinds of yeah. terrible reasons but, but what i'm saying what i'm hearing to, be able to flick my fingers and make everyone's problems go away but we can't do that because we don't live in a perfect world no but we what i'm not not hearing from you is is any particular desire to deal with this issue the ACCC has flagged this question about unreasonable charges you just think they've got it wrong yes we don't see it's a problem to be solved it's actually a feature of the system the charges are not unreasonable the charges are in fact reasonable now there is an issue here with incentivization what your um, sources on the other side i suspect having told you is there are a number of shippers who see you know containers as free gifts from the ocean shipping company oh great all our cargoes turned up oh and they've given us a free box as well and we'll put that you know if you go to the pacific islands for example go have a little tour around the pacific islands you'll find lots of cows living in containers and restaurants using refrigerator containers as uh, mobile refrigeration here in australia you now there's some shippers who particularly use them as free storage and, and you know don't put their goods into warehousing the sector as a whole needs to be incentivized to return boxes back to the ocean shipping companies. Why should we have a regulatory solution when there's a free market solution? First solution, get your box back on time. Second solution, if you can't get back on box back on time, you can incorporate in the terms and conditions of your business so someone else pays. Third solution, insurance. Fourth solution, you can buy extra free time. There is multiple solutions available if you don't want to pay them. The most simple and obvious one being get the box back in time. 
Jim Wilson from Shipping Australia speaking with David Clawton. Uh, we had a bit on that last week as well when, uh, as was mentioned there, the ACCC released a report uh, criticising certain container fees as unreasonable. But as you heard there, they, uh, the Shipping Australia is saying that some of those concerns are just plain wrong. So uh, I'm sure shipping and container access will continue to be uh, an issue as we go forward in 2023. Now, I was interested to hear what's happening weather-wise in the lead-up to Christmas. It seems like there's a bit on the radar, uh, but Jenny Wilson, who's a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, can give us some more information. Good afternoon. Good Cassie. So what's on the horizon this week? Yeah, so it's a bit of an interesting day. It depends on where you are across the state. So we've got this trough of low pressure that's coming across from the west and ahead of that. We've got quite a substantial area of cloud and potential um, sort of shower activity and we have been seeing quite a bit of thunderstorm activity around parts of the north west pastoral district and west coast this morning and still very active around the west coast, um, the North West Pastoral District at the moment. So it's um, extensive band of cloud that sort of extends across from Sejuna all the way down to Lower Air Peninsula, Port Lincoln, and then up across um, Woomera, Roxby Downs, and starting to push into the Flinders and um, parts of the North East Pastoral District as well. A little bit of high cloud streaming across that, but um, mostly central and eastern districts will be remaining dry, even though we may see a little bit of that cirrus starting to come across during the during the day. But we have been seeing some of those. Um, warmer temperatures today it's generally aiming sort of for warm to hot conditions across the state today but we will be watching those storms as they develop today so there is the risk that we could see some um, severe um, activity with those storms today especially across the the pastoral districts and maybe parts of the west coast and air peninsula areas as well so we could be seeing some damaging wind gusts and some um, heavy rainfall that could lead to some isolated flush flooding as well and we couldn't rule out but less likely um, and more likely sort of across the pastoral is maybe some large hail for today as well. So this system um, potentially sort of today is quite slow moving, starting to get into parts of Flinders and the northeast pastoral district, but not really anywhere further east at that stage today. And we are seeing some very clear conditions out in the um, northwest of the state as well. So it's a slow moving trough and low, so it will continue its um, slow progression on Tuesday and we will start to see that activity moving across from the west into central districts and maybe starting to push into our eastern border districts um, later in the evening, but not quite reaching the border with um, Victoria on the Tuesday as well. So those same risks still continue as we head into Tuesday with those thunderstorms. So we'll be watching for severity, more likely as we head into the afternoon and evening periods again. And again, we could be seeing storms that could produce some damaging wind gusts, um, heavy rainfall that could lead to flash flooding, as well as potential for some large hail within those storms on Tuesday as well. Um, as we move into Wednesday, it's still coming across, so definitely getting into those um, um, eastern border districts so around the Riverland and Murray land. So it's going to be um, an interesting time for them as these showers and thunderstorms make their way across on Wednesday. And we are still um, flagging that area of potentially seeing some um, damaging wind gusts and some maybe some heavier rainfall. And that does include parts of the Riverland and Murray lands, unfortunately, at this stage. So we will be watching that very closely as that system comes across um, on the Wednesday there. But we will start to see... Um, 
clearer conditions um, west of Sojourner on Wednesday. We will see that them contract pretty quickly up to the northeast of the state on the Thursday. Cooler southerly airstream in the south, maybe just a little bit of stream shower activity and clearing out of the Riverland and Murrayland very quickly um, overnight Wednesday into Thursday. Those thunderstorms hanging around the northeast on Friday and potentially on Saturday and Sunday up in the very far north and even potentially up into Monday. But for most of the state, Christmas Day is looking like a warm to hot and mostly dry day. Like I said, maybe a little bit of activity in the very far north up and out the NT border, but elsewhere we are looking at pretty dry and warm conditions as our winds turn northerly. Just having a look at some of that expected rainfall up until the end of the week. So up until midnight Friday, it's going to be highly variable with this system as it comes across. But generally we are looking at areas of 10 to 30 millimetres across the state. Less than 5 millimetres in the far west, but we are probably more likely to see only 5 to 15 around Kangaroo Island and the upper and lower southeast districts. And with these storms, it's very dependent on where they happen, but we could be seeing locally higher totals of 30 to 60 millimetres, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Jenny Horvat. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the weather there. And in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western is going to be mostly sunny tomorrow. There's a slight chance of a shower near the South Australian border, most likely in the afternoon and early evening. A thunderstorm possibly in the west in the afternoon as well, getting down to 13 to 22, but during the day reaching the low to mid 30s. The lower western will be mostly sunny. Again, a chance of a shower on the southeastern border, maybe a storm around as well. Overnight down to 12 to 6, 19, but the daytime temperatures reaching the mid-30s. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company in the run-up to Christmas. I am Cassie Huff with you this week and next week in our normal time slot. Now, seafood is often a hot commodity at this time of year, but if you've been hanging out for some South Australian snapper, you'll have to wait another three years because excluding some areas in the South of the state where fishing is still allowed, the government has extended the snapper ban. I've been really heartened, I must say, by the fact that the commercial fishers the charter boat sector, uh, as well as Rickfish SA, have all been united in saying, look, this is difficult, this is difficult for our members or our businesses, but we acknowledge that this is the only responsible decision to take. So what do you make of the extension, the three-year extension of the snapper ban? You can text me on 0467 922 891 or phone 1300-222-891. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I've got a fisherman coming on a little later on to tell you what he makes of the decision made by the government. Also, downy mildew this year is the worst that industry is saying it's seen since the early 70s. You're going to hear how it's affecting the dried fruit industry soon. But first, we'll find out what's making news. We've got Matt Coleman with us. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the state government is now expecting the River Murray flood emergency to be the worst in more than 50 years. More than a 1,000 properties have already been inundated, with more expected to be affected. The SES's flows over the SA border have reached around the 200 gigalitres per day mark. 
The Premier says SA has become the first state to have had all of its energy needs met by green renewables for seven days in a row. The state government officially unveiled a new solar and battery farm near Murray Bridge this morning, which has the ability to supply about a 1,000 homes. It's one of three identical projects being commissioned this month, with systems also in Port Wakefield and Padthaway. And Year 12 students across the state have been receiving their university admission scores this morning, with a record number of students completing their South Australian Certificate of Education this year. Despite 2022's graduating class having spent their senior schooling in the COVID-19 pandemic, a record high of 98.7% of Year 12s completed their SACE. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Matt, there'll be more news with Matt Coleman at one o'clock. Now, the decision has been made to keep the snapper fishery in the Spencer Gulf West Coast and Gulf St Vincent fishing zones closed for another three years. The initial decision was controversial, but the government now says that after three years, the snapper numbers have not rebounded as well as hoped uh, following a South Australian Research and Development Institute snapper stock assessment report that was released last month and uh, the government's uh, been looking at it now Primary Industries Fishing and Forestry Minister Claire Scriven explains why she's made this decision. So the ban was put in place uh, in 2019 for a bit over three years and uh, I've now had to make the difficult decision to extend it until uh, July 2026. Now that's because of the the science essentially. So there's been some quite in-depth science uh, as part of the research over the last few years and unfortunately while it shows that although the, the decline in snapper stocks has been arrested, so it's not getting worse, nor has it got significantly better. So what that means is that if I uh, was to uh, lift lift the ban, that we would really be putting the snapper stocks at serious risk for the future. Uh, and I've been really heartened, I must say, by the fact that the commercial fishers, the charter boat sector, uh, as well as Rick Fish SA, have all been united in saying, look, this is difficult, this is difficult for our members or our businesses, but we acknowledge that this is the only responsible decision to take and so that's why I've made that decision. Is it a concern, though, Minister, that having had this ban in place now for a number of years, that nothing's actually changed? It hasn't actually improved? Well, it's not so much that nothing has changed. The stocks were declining. What we did was uh, had an, a number of forums uh, to explain the science, to explain the report that came out in November. We had them uh, all over the state for the areas that have had a closure of the snapper fishery so that people could actually see what had been happening uh, and what... um, yeah, where that would potentially go. So if you like, it's plateaued. So we're no longer seeing a further decline, which is what was happening up until 2019, but we haven't had enough of an improvement to be able to reopen the mm. snapper fisheries. So there's a couple of things that I'm putting in place to try to, to help this. Um, the first of all is the practical measures for those who have businesses far affected. So fee relief for the charter boat sector and also for commercial fishers. Um, but we're also investing $5 million with the Fisheries Research and Development uh, Organisation to actually do even more expansive science to look at what are the factors that are impacting the stocks uh, and what, therefore what can we do um, to improve things going forward. I'm also doing a restocking program, so it will be close to a million fingerlings will be released into the uh, Gulf St Vincent and Spencer Gulf over the next two years, uh, as well as working with Recfish SA to do some, um, some reef so to create more habitat for 
snapper. So uh, we certainly hope for that accommodation of all this. It's a, it's a total package of $8.8 million investment into this will actually help uh, to have the, the, the stocks recover. And also something I think is really important, and this is pointed out by, by Rick Fisher's A, is to have things like the restocking and also the um, uh, the establishment of new reefs. That's where people can get involved and actually be doing something to help as well. So um, we'll be able to say more about that in the new year, about how that will actually work. But we're really encouraging people to to get involved in trying to create um, more habitat and better habitat for snapper because everyone wants, you know, to be able to fish for snapper, but, snapper, but they also want their kids and their grandkids uh, down the track to also have access to snapper. So that's why I had to make the decision, difficult though it was, uh, to keep this closure in place. Primary Industries Fishing and Forestry Minister Claire Scriven speaking with Lee Radford. Now, as the Minister mentioned there, the Government will provide an $8.8 million support package. There's a few elements there, as she outlined. There's some fee relief, um, and uh, uh, that's 50% of the annual fee relief uh, for the... Um, People affected by that, the, the snapper people, there's $5 million going towards a science program to improve understanding of the factors that underpin the stock recovery as well as work restoring uh, habitat and uh, reef restoration and things like that. Now, Kiri Tomazos is a key stakeholder in the Gulf St Vincent commercial fishery. Good afternoon. Uh, hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So what do you make of the government's decision to extend the snapper ban by another three years? Uh, we strongly support the minister's decision in expanding the closure for another three years. Uh, this will ensure that the stock rebuilds to hopefully adequate levels for us to reopen the fishery in the future. And that, so you're supporting that. Do you think the the whole industry has taken that approach, or are you is there concern out there that this is another three years with uh, not an inability to access that that uh, resource? I think uh, I think the commercial guys who are responsible custodians of the marine environment will be supporting this. Obviously, not everyone will share the same view, but when you make difficult decisions in fisheries management. It needs to be driven by science, and science is underpinning this expansion of the closure. So, you know, the the commercial fishers who want to have longevity in this industry are fully supportive of the decision made by Minister Scriven. There, I've got a couple of texts coming through suggesting that, uh, that to get a, a sustainable amount of snapper that there's going to be the need to ban nets and long lining. Do you think that's going to be the case, that that's what will be needed to see the snapper numbers return? I think with fisheries management, it's not necessarily the method that you take snapper. It's actually the output of the stock that you set. So if we are able to set conservative levels of output, then regardless of the method you use, you will ensure that the stock is sustainable. You're out there fishing in the Gulf St Vincent every day. What have you seen numbers-wise when it comes to, to snapper? Well, snapper numbers, obviously snapper is a species that congregates. So when you see the congregations, it appears that there is a lot of fish out there. But obviously, there is a lot more science that goes into underpinning these decisions. And as the minister clearly explained, the stock has actually uh, has not continued to decline. The, the stock has been stabilised. 
So we are just giving the stock enough time to rebuild to levels that we can sustainably harvest into the future. Do you think this is going to become a bit of a cycle, though, opening it up, allowing fishing, finding that the uh, numbers have declined too much, closing it down, waiting some time? Do you think this is going to continue being a cycle or do you think there will be a point where it can be sustainable? Absolutely not. Like uh, with with good fisheries management, and that's why we're very supportive of the the closure being extended, once we're able to establish good scientific grounds with regards to how much fish we can sustainably take, then we are very confident that at at the end of this closure, we will be able to set um, sustainable conservative levels of um, take to never have to reshut the snapper fishery here in South Australia. Are you surprised that the numbers haven't recovered more in three years? I am personally not surprised because this is a long-lived stock and it's got, um, it hasn't got consistent breeding uh, cycles. So obviously the recruitment into the fishery is not consistent. So it does take several years to, to be able to observe the rebuild. And further to that, it takes basically six years from a very small juvenile fish until that fish comes into the fishable biomass. So hence, another reason why the extension of the closure is essential. And there is a support package associated with this ban. There's a a reduced fees for, um, I think it's 50% off the annual fee for uh, the charter boat fishing licence holders, as well as um, people affected by the snapper quota. And then there's money going towards some science and um, restoration work. How crucial was this support package to get the support of the industry? Absolutely. Strongly support the financial package put together by the minister. I think that that will ensure that the uh, financial burden on the operators is uh, lessened and also the improvement and expansion of the science program will ultimately mean that we will be able to make very informed decisions prior to opening the fishery in 2026. Could this money, though, have been spent on buying back licences? Would that have been a, a more sustainable way to tackle the issue? No, unfortunately, this is not a resource-share discussion because obviously we're ensuring that we have a sustainable stock. So with a sustainable stock, it doesn't actually matter who takes that stock. It matters doing it in a sustainable manner that actually allows longevity for future generations to come. And how have you adjusted? Because you were fishing for snapper and now obviously you can't. How have you adjusted to the the change conditions? Basically, all the fishers that have been very proactive in actually looking at this from a uh, long-term perspective have either reinvested in other areas, in other species, or have, you know, uh, ensured that their businesses can maintain long periods of closures. So I am a strong supporter of diversification in primary industry, regardless if it's fishing or farming. So most businesses have diversified their fishing operations to ensure long-term sustainability. 
There's a lot of commentary coming through on the uh, the text line about going back to uh, sort of single line fishing, that sort of thing, and getting rid of the nets and uh, the long line fishing. Do you think that will be required, though? Uh, you, you mentioned before that you don't think the method I matters. Wanna, I, just, I just want to clarify to everyone online that there is no netting for snapper. So snapper can only be taken via a line method, either by a single hook or a long line. So there is no netting for snapper. So that issue has been mitigated here in South Australia for several decades. So, um, you know, if, if there is some of the listeners that are thinking that snapper can be taken by net, that has been banned quite considerable years ago. And I have another question here, which you might be able to answer. It says here, uh, asks, have any permits been traded during this time, i.e. Uh, bigger companies buying out smaller operators' licences? Do you know if that's been happening? Yes, of course. Like, uh, there, there, there's been quite a bit of trading from individual fishers, such as, you know, people like ourselves in our own company and other bigger companies. But ultimately, it's a tradable commodity at the moment, and people may or may not invest in snapper units. That indirectly is a personal choice that individuals make. And the majority of people that actually invested in the snapper fishery over the last few years are strongly supporting the expansion of the closure to ensure that their asset is sustainable into the future. Well, thank you so much for explaining some of those points to me. I dare say uh, you're doing a lot of fishing in the lead up to Christmas. Absolutely. No, fishing is good and uh, we are enjoying being part of this incredible industry. Well, thank you for um, chatting to me this afternoon. Have a good afternoon. No worries. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Kiri Tomazos. He's a fisherman. He's a key stakeholder in the Gulf St. Vincent commercial fishery. Quite a few texts have come through and uh, Rob has called in. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. You were wanting to, what do you make of the government's extension of the snapper ban? Well, look, you know, it's really just that if you've got a net in the water and um, snapper, you know, a school of snapper swims into it, they're going to get caught and uh, you're going to pull them out. And um, by the time you pull them out, they're probably going to be dead. And um, what do you do with them? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I guess there is that inadvertent catch. Sorry, this is Kim, not Rob. Um, th- thanks to you, you were thinking that, that nets um, are kind of, if there is nets around, that, that it is unavoidable. I mean, those fishermen, they were saying that it's it's not done here, but uh, but there are people with nets out there. Well, aware they're, they're of, not yeah. targeting it. They're not targeting it, but um, it, it still must happen. And what it really means is that um, um, they must throw a whole lot of, Fish away Fish still. that are dead back, you know, so um, just my thought. I don't know. I'm not a fisherman. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much for calling in. Appreciate your call. People can uh, do what uh, Kim has done to call me, 0467922891. Sorry, that's text me, 0467922891 or call 1300 Rob, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. What do you make of um, the snapper ban? Yeah, the snapper ban's okay for another year, but the problem I see is actually the uh, professionals longlining for shark in Backstairs Passage and up around the Gulf. Now, nothing's ever 
listed about the number of snapper caught on these long lines and actually thrown back, which they have to do, and are dead because they pull them up out of deep water. And nothing's ever listed about it. And now I think that's some of the blame or most of the blame why we can't catch, us amateurs can't catch a snapper. We're not allowed to. No, I mean, as in you think that you don't have as much effect as the, the commercial industry? No, and um, they just don't ever mention it because they don't want anyone to know about all the snapper caught on the long lines. Yeah, there's. Um, it does sound like there's, um, yes, people who are inadvertently still catching them as well. I don't know myself, but uh, I dare say they are being caught further out there uh, in, on those those long line ships. And uh, quite a few texts are coming in talking about uh, perhaps going back to a one man, one line, one hook max sort of situation uh, to potentially deal with the issue of overfishing as well. Exactly, because all those golf waters from Backstairs Passage up is uh, a breeding ground for snapper. And if they're longlining them for uh, shark, uh, they're destroying all the breeders. And especially some of those 18, 20-pound snapper, they don't recover when you just let them go off a long line. I can't imagine they would. I'm not a fisher woman myself, so uh, I've never really spent much time uh, with fish, but I dare say uh, not many of us really survive going through that. It would... It'd be good for the government to actually look into that, into long lining, more than worry about the amateurs so much. And with the amateurs, why don't they just have it back this year, but have one one fish per person, just to give you some sort of an interest and people will spend money over on York Peninsula and down south um, in tourism. But one fish per person, and I think a lot of the amateurs would be happy. Thank you so much for calling in, Rob. I've got a few more texts. Uh, there's uh, people who are supporting uh, buybacks and removing effort from the fishery is paramount. Uh, licensed buyback is the only way. And uh, Bob from Mile End uh, asks why we're allowed to catch adult fish, which are bre- the breeding stock, but are not allowed to catch smaller fish, which are not breeders. Thanks so much for uh texting in there Bob uh, and uh, Richie from Woodville has uh, done a bit of fishing it looks like in Queensland uh, saying that long lining is illegal in Queensland uh, and after 16 years of experience in the, the Queensland wholesale fishing industry uh, Rob is uh, questioning that as well the long lining uh, also uh, a text in about fingerlings the signs of uh, prawns where will they end up in prawn trawlers' nets? So, uh, fingerlings, I should say, about the size of a prawn, ending up in prawn trawler nets. And uh, Richie's also questioning uh, $5 million on yet another science uh, project that could uh, bring back a lot of, uh, could buy back a lot of snapper licenses. So, uh, thanks so much for letting me know what you think. It's been a, a controversial topic in South Australia, and Dessa, we've got another three years of people uh, weighing in on it. But as you heard there, there is support from the commercial fishing industry as well for keeping it closed for another three years. It's 10 to 1. Half a step forward, put to the pitch. Yeah, yeah. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. This is party time. On the ABC Listen app. Every ball. Punching this through the offside. Every catch. That is an extraordinary catch. Every wicket. Free. Oh, wow. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket.
live on the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Is to the river now. We'll take a look at what's happening in the River Murray. There have been grants and funding packages announced for locals and businesses affected by the flood, but it can be pretty hard to sift through the bulk of information that's uh, coming through on what you might be eligible for. Rural Business Support has been working with the government to get financial support to people affected by the flooding, and the Chief Executive Officer, Brett Smith, has been in the Riverland just taking a bit of a look around to see what's needed and uh, what sort of work the organisation can do. And uh, after having a bit of a look around, he joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So what have you seen? What are some of the biggest issues that you think you're going to have to tackle? Well, I think uh, at, at the moment, you know, people are uh, obviously preparing and they're, they're, they're seeking information. I, I think that's the, that's the critical thing at the moment, Cass, is that um, there's a lot of announcements being made and... There's there's a lot of things that are out there in terms of you know assistance and grants etc. Um, and I, and I, I just think um, you know people want to be able to uh, know that they can go to organisations that can can help them and assist them um, sift through all the information that is that is available. So I think what I mean what I saw was and the people I spoke to. Uh, was was mainly around the recovery centres, the one based at Berry and and the one based at Menham, and and both those recovery centres have a a plethora of support organisations based there, um, providing you know all the information that that is required, um, and you know people were just basically coming in and and um, uh, talking to the the front triage area and then being directed to the various support organisations. That uh, that they could get information from. It looks to be working really well from a, a walking perspective, but obviously sometimes that's difficult, um, particularly when people are preparing for uh, what is happening. And um, uh, obviously, the organisations can can be reached through uh, telephone, um, and uh, and certainly uh, RBS has its one eight hundred number, which we'll, we'll we'll give the listeners at the end of this interview. And uh, we can help uh, with, uh, you know, again, sifting through that information. RBS's role often comes in after the fact when, when people are trying to, to work their way through a situation. How do you see RBS playing a role? As, as you know, Cass, and we've spoken many times, I mean, we, we have our rural financial counsellors that, uh, that, that are there helping primary producers um, in the background always. Uh, there, there are other things obviously going on um, in our rural environments that uh, that are impacting primary producers. So we're we're there all the time, um, working away uh, to to help and assist. Um, importantly, our, our remit has been expanded, so we can actually help small businesses, other small businesses other than primary production businesses. Uh, but our service has been enhanced by the Office of Small and Family Business uh, funding that's come through the state government to allow us to maintain our business financial counselling resources on the ground to, to help through this, this tough time because it's not only the primary producers, it's also the small businesses in our rural towns um, that are being impacted by the floods and also um, you know the, all those tourism businesses in particular, the river businesses I call them, that, that are now um, obviously being impacted by uh, what is happening. So 
you know, business is not going to be good and um, uh, we need to have a service there that, that can help and assist those businesses. Obviously, the cash flow impacts and the, and the damage to the balance sheets of, the small, of these small businesses is not going to go away um, just because the river starts to, um, you know, the water in the river starts to go down. The impact of this will be felt for some time into the future. Uh, so that's when our financial counsellors, as you rightly pointed out, will come into play because we'll be again sitting down and working with those small businesses through the plans for recovery, um, particularly around the financial aspects of their business. And this is happening at a time when the Riverland is also facing massive issues when it comes to grapes. Uh, grape growing is such a, a massive industry in the Riverland, but it is a real struggle at the moment to find a home for those grapes. What effect do you see these two issues, the flooding as well as the uh, shortage, as, as well as the, the poor grape prices and, and lack of demand for these grapes? What, what effect do you see that um, combination of issues having on the area? Yeah, it is, it is very concerning because... Um the uh, yeah you, you, you're right in what you're saying. There are a lot of producers that are facing serious problems with this year's um, grape harvest and uh, well, wine, grape wine harvest, and it is really impactful. So we're working, um, you know, with all the various um, industry bodies uh, to um, to to help deal with that. So we've got a lot of demand coming out of that space, um, along with the extra demand on what's happening, you know, with the flood. And I should say, and I made the point a moment ago, there is another impact here because the primary producers that um, are looking to try and get water from the river are really obviously concerned about what's going to happen in terms of their pumps and the power uh, to pumps and being able to actually pump water, you know, the kilometres that are required to water their, their respective crops. In one way, we can have a flood in the river, but we can also have a drought um, some kilometres away because we can't get water to where it's needed. If people are in need of RBS services, where can they go? Well, we've got our, um, our 1800 number, um, Cass, which um, uh, if anyone rings that number right through um, you know, the, the, the period in front of us and the holiday period, etc., on any day, ring 1800 836 Two double one. That's one eight hundred eight three six two double one, and you'll be put through to one of our financial counsellors, whether that be for rural purposes or whether it be for small business purposes. Uh, we'll direct you to the appropriate counsellor. Um, in addition, uh, our counsellors are at the um, available through the Berry uh, Recovery Centre, which is at the Senior Citizens Club on Crawford Terrace, and also through um, the Menham. Recovery Centre, which is at the Menham Football Club on Belvedere Road in Menham. So go to the centre or ring the 1800 number um, and we'll be able to connect you with a financial counsellor or a business financial counsellor to, to help and assist. I'm sure a lot of people will be taking up that offer of support. A lot of people are going to need that. But thank you, Brett, for your help through the year. It's been uh, good to chat to you. Often it's about tough topics. Uh, people are often facing difficult times when we're talking to you. But uh, thank you for your help and uh, Merry Christmas. Yes, thanks, Kath. Brett Smith, the CEO of Rural Business Support. And that number again, if you are wanting to get in touch and get some support for your business, uh, that number is 1800 836 211. There are some watch and act. Uh 
warnings for the River Murray. There's the uh, one for the low-lying areas between Tail and Bend and Wellington. Also a uh, Flood Watch and Act message for Murrawong as well. And obviously the Flood and Act message for Pondy where a levee breach uh, could threaten people's safety. This flooding is expected to cause uh, properties to become isolated and the roads that may be affected are Widenhopper Road, Skinner Road, Reserve Parade, Kenny Road and Pondy Landing Road. So do uh, make sure you follow his instructions there. It's coming up to one o'clock. ABC Radio, it's yours. Yours for sharing your news. Yours for airing your local perspective. Yours in good times and bad. ABC Radio. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.